to the Dark Path Podcast. I'm Luke Trottier, and today we're going to be talking with a friend of mine uh, who has some knowledge and experience with the world of cryptocurrency, which I don't know a whole lot about, but I am very intrigued by, especially in terms of the bigger picture elements that this has in terms of ramifications for the economy and many, many, many other things. So without further ado, uh, this is Justin Nearing, and Justin, please uh, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm uh, I'm Justin. Um, I am a game developer by trade, um, but in the past couple months, I've uh, really fallen down the rabbit hole that is crypto and all things digital currencies and all that good stuff. Um, and I've um, just become absolutely so- somewhat obsessed with with all the different rabbit holes that you can go through. Um, there's a lot of exciting things going on in the space right now. Um, and I think there's some um, fundamental shifts that um, this new kind of money, this new kind of exchange of value really allows for in, in context of our, how our society operates. Um, so I'm super excited to be talking with you today and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I think for many people, including myself, um, it might be good to start at the beginning. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of times people don't really have a sense of what money is in general. So the even the currency that they use every day, they don't think about where that comes from, how it exists. And so maybe you could talk about a little bit about that, but also then, of course, how that relates to cryptocurrency being a new form of value, as you said, which in itself is a fascinating thought. Um, so yeah, can you can you sort of give us a basis of what's going on? Yeah, um, it's it's a great question, and it's probably the best place to start is is what is money, um, and it turns out that money is um, a couple things, but um, the most important thing I think is that it's a social construct. Um, money has value because we all agree that money has value, um, and the way that we ascribe that value to it is it has money has three things um, or it needs three things to be considered uh, money. Um, One, it has to be a unit of account, um, which is a fancy way of saying the credit card statement that you get, the things that's listing, the money that's paid and owed, that's being listed in money. It is the the unit of account for that uh, credit card statement. Um, The next thing it needs to be is a store of value. Um, so they're not listing it. They're not listing the number in grains of sand because grains of sand has no monetary value. It has no value ascribed to it. Um, so it has to be listed in something that has value. Um, so we have a unit of account. We have a store of value. And the third thing is a medium of exchange. Um, and what that means is basically they're not listing it in Picasso paintings. Picasso paintings have value. There's, you know, you, you could list it as, as a credit card statement, but no one's going to exchange a Picasso for, you know, a hamburger. Um, so what we need is something that encapsulates all three of those things to be considered money. When um, you look at the monies of old, you look at like gold, gold coins, well, that satisfies that you could list that as I have five gold coins. There's your unit of account. Gold obviously has value. And you could exchange that for goods and services. Um, you probably still can today, although I don't know who's you know running around with gold coins in their pocket. Um, today, we use fiat currencies, um, which is mm-hmm. basically um, 
what the government says um, is legal tender for all debts, public and private, um, which means that the government says that this is the money and we all are participants within our government, um, whether we like it or not. Therefore, we all agree that this is the medium of exchange that we're going to use to pay our services. Um, really, that means that we can use it to pay our taxes. Um, the government isn't going to accept your Picasso painting um, for, uh, to, to, um, uh, to pay your taxes. You're going to have to exchange that for US dollars or Canadian dollars or pesos, whatever currency that government is going to accept as this is the legal tender for this country. Go ahead and keep going if you want. Okay. <laughs> just just wanted to pause. It's 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 uh there's there's a lot you can you can say. Yeah, what what I've got for so far is is this is the outline of what currency is in a general sense. Yeah. With with a, a little bit about the current fiat currency. Um so yeah, now um maybe I when I think about cryptocurrencies, um I, I see it being similar to a lot of the things that were created out of this thing that was brand new of 15 years ago called the internet, right? So up until that point, this wasn't even a possibility. And so I think like so many of the other things that have emerged out of the internet, um, um, it's just so new that I think a lot of people have trouble conceptualizing it, um, it, its existence in the real world in that sense. It's a great point because um, it only exists in a world where the internet exists. You know, you don't have Bitcoin without, you know, high-speed internet um, available, right? Um, and the internet as a network, as a global network, needed to hit a certain um, critical mass in order for all these you know, goods and services that we enjoy um, today in order to, to exist. Um, the, the thing is, though, is that the things that are in the, that in, that are in the digital space there are valuable things that only exist in the digital space, right? Um, and these can be all sorts of things. You can you can think of, um, you know, a uh, like a like a pass to visit some um, you know community site, something that like like a private community within um, that you can only get access to if you pay a hundred dollars, right? That mm. that access has value. Obviously, it's not real. It's not like you're going to download the piece of paper and doesn't work that way. Um, but it, it's a way to say that the things that are on the internet, even though that they are in a digital context, do have value. Um, what's interesting about cryptocurrencies is that it kind of takes that concept and it kind of uh, shifts it a bit where it's not this thing has value. It's a fungible thing of value. Um, now, fungible is a fancy word that's, uh, that means basically interchangeable. So if I take a $10 bill and I replace it with another $10 bill, even though there's, those $10 bills are different, they're still $10. They're, they're fungible. They're interchangeable. Mm -hmm. um, that pass to that community site is not really fungible. The Picasso painting is not fungible. If I replace one Picasso with another, people are like, no, 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 that's, that's not the same thing. Mm. Um, so what a cryptocurrency is, is a fungible store of value, which means 
you can replace one Bitcoin with another Bitcoin and it's still one Bitcoin. It's not the Bitcoin that matters. It's how much of it that you have. It is very much as a money where you, it doesn't matter if you have one $10 bill or another $10 bill. What matters is how many $10 bills you have. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I, I've always looked at money as sort of a social lubricant for exchange. Um, and I've recognized um, for a long time now that it's it's an it's a an abstract value. So it's a value that's placed into this current this whatever it is, because we need something that allows one person's time to be valuable enough to acquire the goods and services they need in their life um, in a in a general sense. Because as you know, I teach martial arts, as, and I certainly couldn't trade enough individuals. For martial art lessons to get oh, my shoes and my socks and my house and all that stuff. So I understand that. But as much as, again, I know how a lot of people don't even really understand how the current currency we have is created, I think it might be interesting and useful to, to try to explain a little bit about the nuts and bolts about how cryptocurrency comes into existence. And also, if you know, or want to share or have the time, want to get into a bit of how how who conceptualized this initially and how they did that and, and brought it in into the world? Uh, sure. Um, so the first cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, it was released in 2008. Um, uh, not great things were happening in the global economy in 2008. Um, we call it the great financial crisis for a reason. Um, but basically um, what it was is a anonymous person, or we don't know if it's a single male, female, a group of individuals, but an anonymous uh, founder released something called the Bitcoin white paper. We're talking about, and I didn't know this, I didn't know this, but you were saying that it's anonymous who created Bitcoin initially. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, um, not anonymous, the no. organization. <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't mean that. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> too, too many anonymouses. You're right. You're right. And I got to be clear with what I said that. But I just mean that there's no one who's taking credit for that initial. Correct. That's yeah. that's really wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, please, please go on. So in 2008, um, somehow this thing comes into play and, go, and from there. Right. Uh, so um, they release a white paper um, that described a peer-to-peer digital cash. Um it wasn't the first time um, that this kind of internet money had been thought of. Um, there had been previous experience um, experiments on it. Um, one of the reasons that this person remained anonymous was um, those previous experience experiments had either failed or um, been subject to legal um, problems um, because the uh, United States is very jealous that it has the money and it doesn't want um, potential rivals, uh, real or imagined, right? Um, so they um, decided to remain anonymous. Their, um, their, the name they t- chose is uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. So the author of the uh, Bitcoin white paper is uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and what Bitcoin is, um, is essentially it, it solves a interesting set of problems in a really graceful way. Um, so the big thing about cryptocurrencies in general is that there isn't a single source of truth. There isn't a single server that says, this is what 
um, this is how much money there is, this is who is paying who, this is what all the transactions is. Um, that um, is a really tough problem to solve. Um, in order to solve it, they said, well, okay, if we can't have, if we don't want one single source of truth, because if you have a single source of truth, you have a single point of failure or a single point of corruption um, that says, no, today, now you have, um, you know, zero of these things. And I have double of these things because I have access to the servers. Um, if we don't want that, um, they decided, well, okay, what we'll do is um, we'll have everyone that is a participant in this uh, experiment um, be one of the sources of truth. Um, so basically, it's a decentralized ledger. Um, now, ledger is, you know, like your credit card statement. It's a list of transactions within, you know, um, a set of time. Uh, so what they have is a distributed ledger where everyone that has a, a Bitcoin node has a full copy of every transaction ever made in Bitcoin. These are super lightweight. They do a bunch of interesting things to make it so it's really small so that you can run it on computer hardware. Um, you could run it on your laptop, for instance, um, if you wanted to. You could have a full Bitcoin node and you could have the full history of Bitcoin and actively verify new transactions as they come in. Um, this is important because it means that you can't just have one person decide, no, now you have zero and I have double. Um, because that would be a big problem. Um, this type of thing had been attempted before, uh, but it failed um, because they didn't have a way to um, prevent someone from saying, um, because we're all anonymous in, in, this, in this network, right? I don't know who all the participants of Bitcoin are. Right, right. Because the ledger is, is a shareable ledger, right? It's, it's communi communicable, not communicable, but community-based. That's really interesting, but yeah, keep going. But um, I, I got some thoughts on that. Right. Um, yeah, so the big problem is, um, so one of the things that, that one of the other things that um, Bitcoin solves really gracefully um, is there is a type of, um, it's called a 51% attack. Um, and let, so let's say that Bitcoin is super valuable, um, which it is now. Um, but when you get something that hits a certain value, you're going to have an individual or group of individuals who want to try and, um, you know, acquire that Bitcoin through any means possible, um, even if it is uh, nefarious. Um, and so what this theoretical attack is, is if you have... Um, so let's say that there are 20 participants in this Bitcoin node. So there's 20 individual copies. Um, if you get 51% or more of everyone to agree to make a certain change to the history of Bitcoin, then that is what happens. Bitcoin is basically majority rules. If 51% or more of the network agrees that this transaction is valid, or we're reversing this transaction, or we're making some change, then that is what happens. It is majority rules. Um, that's good if you only have a small number of bad actors that are trying to send a coin to one person and the same coin to another, because it means that they can't get through. They can only get that double spend through if they successfully 
gain 51% or more of the total network. Um, so really, um, one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is um, they've never successfully had that 51% attack. They've never had enough people to try and attack the system in a coordinated way. The reason they were able to do that was because they have an incentive for each individual person. So in addition to having the full history of transactions and verify each transaction coming in, each node, each computer running the Bitcoin, uh, running a Bitcoin node has the chance to get newly minted Bitcoin. So every block that's created or every, um, through every interval of time, um, your computer um, starts hashing away. It's, it's trying to solve a uh, cryptographic puzzle. And if it solves that cryptographic puzzle, it tells everyone else in the network, all the other nodes, hey, I have the answer to that puzzle. Those other nodes say, yes, that is the answer. And you are granted, um, I think now it's 12 and a half new Bitcoin. That's, you know, that, that comes out of its total supply. What this does is it's really clever because in, because you have the chance to earn newly minted Bitcoin, you don't want other people to mint those newly minted Bitcoin. So you're in competition with each other. So you're not cooperating to game the system. You're not cooperating to get that 51% majority. Um, and so that's the really beautiful thing about this is it created a consensus algorithm that allows us to fully decentralize this database of money. Um, really what Bitcoin does is it converts greed into security <laughs> because the humans humans just they the, the the need to compete and and be the one to get those coins is greater than the ability to um, coordinate to you know get those coins through other means um, so so it really is quite an interesting little um, that, that that's why I say they solve this problem really gracefully because they're using game theory and human psychology to maintain and increase the security of it so that no one person can say, okay, now we're going to, um, you know, triple the amount of Bitcoin in existence, for example. Absolutely. Fascinating. Um, it's it, So I'd like to, I can see already, I should say that there's a tremendous amount of potential solution type effects to a lot of problems in the world through something like this. And as you said, I think one of the key elements there is, however we move into the future, if it's going to be positive, which we all hope it is, um, it has to be aware of and integrate with natural human behavioral patterns. There's this idea of trying to like, you know, whiteboard the entire world so everybody's just a blank slate and then they just behave as you expect them to. Of course not. But but that's really clever. And I, I can see a correlate within like a natural setting too, because in nature, um, there is competition in, say, the herd of animals. There is competition, but that competition sustains the strength of the herd, too. And yep. therefore, everybody is helping keeping it together by their own efforts. And then, yeah, that, that's really clever. Um, I just want to circle back to something for just for a second for, yep. for my own interest. What was the, it was like a Japanese name that gets this credit for, for the white paper? Yeah, so, Satoshi Nakamoto. So that name doesn't mean anything, though? 
No, I mean, you look at Satoshi, well, Satoshi is um, the richest person in the world now um, because Bitcoin has become as valuable as, um, as it is. And Satoshi's wallet um, has enough Bitcoin to make them, um, you know, the richest person in the world. Huh. So what's fascinating is no one has successfully been able to prove that they are Satoshi. Um, and so far, those coins actually haven't really moved out of that wallet. <laughs> Um, oh, wow. it, it's wow. it's very interesting the kind of history of it because um this entity satoshi nakamoto um releases this white paper um he has um some emails going back and forth with some um uh some you know crypto nerds there it was a is a subculture on the internet called cypherpunks um that were you know all about like this um, libertarian let's create money let's let's have this totally total privacy no governments kind of thing um like really cryptographic cri cryptography nerds that were trying to build like a new internet society um he emails back and forth with some of these people because they were the ones that had been previously trying to develop this kind of peer-to-peer -peer digital cash um and then he just kind of goes silent he goes dark hmm. um and hasn't really um made any announcements since then um there was a person that they found whose name was satoshi nakamoto and everybody thought for a while this is it but he was just kind of a guy who sat in his basement and liked to play with model trains like the, huh. not satoshi nakamoto there's the that email came out, um, an email from Satoshi said, I am not this guy, um, but I've heard that um, at that point, the email may have been compromised at that point. Point is, um, the this person or entity or group of people um, have the most money in the history of the world <laughs> and um, haven't really, um, you know, taken that. Like, I don't know about you, but I would not be able to stand not accessing all that money, right? Um, like, I'd like to think that I have pretty high ideals and I'd like <laughs> to do things for the good of, of, of humanity, um, but I, I'd take the money. I, I, I would, I, I would, I would say, yes, I am Satoshi and here, give, give me all the yachts. Yeah, um, <laughs> all of them. Um, but, but that speaks to me to this person or persons already has enough money they don't care or they um deliberately destroyed access to it like when mm. it was not super valuable yeah um they decided you know like um for the good of of this they, they made a satoshi sacrifice and, and said you know maybe this becomes the most important the, the next money in the world but uh mm. for the moment um well now while it's you know less than a penny per dollar i'm mm. just going to destroy access to it because um, that that's the only way i could see it or that person or persons um is no longer with us maybe maybe mm. they died and, and passed away um there yeah. there is at least one person who kind of fits that where um they were kind of a, a computer scientist in the cypherpunk movement um who passed away um but again it's 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 an interesting riddle within um, mm. the cryptocurrency world, um, yeah. but uh, I think it's better that Satoshi remains anonymous. 
Um, I think the worst possible thing is for someone to come and say, yes, I am Satoshi, and this is what we're going to do now. Um, yeah. One of its advantages is that it, it has no single leader. Yeah. Yeah, that that's what I keep coming back to in the bigger picture element of this is that it is, as you say, decentralized. Um, but before I, I jump into that too much, I, I just want to touch on also, so is, is, as difficult as it is to kind of wrap your head around if you've never thought about it, all currency is abstract. All currency is a projection into the world to allow for currency exchange. Okay. Uh, digital currencies are born out of the digital space. And that makes sense because why not utilize the space to its maximum potential? Somewhere in there, there's some incredible genius level design elements here because of the way that you talk about how it's set up and, and, and can sustain itself as being um, democratized almost, I guess you could say. Um, do all the other cryptocurrencies work in the same framework, like Ethereum and such? Um, they have uh, yes and no. They all have a consensus algorithm. They all have a way of ensuring that um, you that no one person has the single source of truth. Um, what Satoshi Nakamoto did was create this thing called the Nakamoto consensus. Um, and that's what I was getting into with the, your computer is solving a puzzle. And if it solves that puzzle, it announces it. Everybody says, yes, you got it. Um, that's great. Um, Ethereum um, also uses that. It's slightly different, um, but that's called proof of work. What your computer do, is doing is it's proving that it's done the work to solve this puzzle. Um, and that's where, and when you go down that rabbit hole, that's kind of the root of the big questions around is Bitcoin environmentally unfriendly, um, and all this. Um, the reason is, is that you get some very clever people that are like, okay, um, if I'm going to get 12 and a half new Bitcoin, um, whenever a new block is created or, or whatever, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get like a thousand computers and all those computers are going to do is try to mine for this Bitcoin. They're just going to keep solving these puzzles. Um, you start to scale up. It's from a thousand computers to 10,000 to a hundred thousand. And really what starts to happen is it's not so much the computers that are running. It's the amount of power that it takes yeah. to feed all of these computers that are trying to solve this, you know, completely useless riddle um, <laughs> just so that they can get the Bitcoin. Um, the economics work out so that you need like huge data center scale um, uh, uh, computers to reliably get enough Bitcoin and your energy has to be cheap enough to turn a profit. Um, for China, what that means is a lot of cheap or even stolen coal power um, mm. because coal is the cheapest gen power generation. Um, and there was studies that came out that said, um, you know, really looked into it and said, um, yeah, the uh, scale of Bitcoin mining, at least in China, um, uh, does put uh, China's uh, Paris uh, Agreement commitments at risk. Mm. Um, that these things do happen. And these weren't really super sanctioned by the Chinese government and all that. Um, that's not so much of a problem now that China has completely banned um, uh, Bitcoin and mining. Um, they've Bitcoin, they, they've banned Bitcoin like 
six or seven times in its history. Um, but the big news that came out this year was um, that they actually banned Bitcoin mining. Um, and that was a really huge source of, of revenue for some people. Um, that actually, the majority of Bitcoin mining in the world was coming out of China. Um, that's since kind of been distributed as, you know, the Chinese government has cracked down on that behavior. Um, but to, to circle back to this consensus algorithm, this, this way of doing it, um, it's not the only way to do it. And um, the other systems and what the industry has started doing, these new coins that have come out, um, especially in the last couple of years, um, is using a new kind of consensus algorithm called proof of stake. So instead of proof of work, proof of stake. And really what you're doing is um, you are staking some of the uh, currency that you own. So if I own, um, so as an example, um, Ethereum doesn't have it yet, but it's moving to there. Um, but uh, one that does is called Cardano, the Cardano blockchain. Um, and it uses proof of stake. Um, and so if you have 10 Cardano, you can stake that Cardano and it will, um, you, you delegate it to a, to a stake pool operator. And what this is doing is basically this person or this entity is verifying that the transactions are coming in, verifying that it's correct. And when it successfully verifies and when it is acting as a good citizen in this network, it is rewarded with new Cardano or new ADA that is distributed to everyone based on how much they put in. So that's a complicated way of saying if you stake 10 ADA, you'll start earning like 5% a year on that ADA by securing the network. Um, it has a nice advantage of it doesn't have a lot of energy constraints. Mm -hmm. You're not you don't need full data centers with coal power plants in order to uh, secure the network. Um, you're just getting everyone who wants to stake some of their things that's just sitting in a wallet anyways, why not earn like five five percent a year on, on that? Um, so uh, there's there's a couple others. Um, it's one of the big uh, the big things that is um, being investigated right now. There's a lot of different chains that are experimenting with things. There's like proof of history and you know these these other things. Um, but but yeah, the, the main thing is that there has to be a consensus algorithm that allows you to fully decentralize it because the power of this entire movement is rooted in that decentralized aspect. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. Um, and I'm, yeah, thank you for sharing this stuff because it's making me a lot more interested as well. <clears throat> um, yeah, so I wanna jump into maybe then how this relates to the real world economic dynamics. So you, a couple of things stand out there that I think are really important to, to balance against this, this whole thing is like, one is this problem then of energy production and the use of it to create, to confirm the value, I guess is better, but is a way to put it. Um, but immediately I can tell that this type of currency would be at least conceptually a threat to national currencies. Um, so as you know, and everyone knows, like, power and money and, you know, corruption and all this stuff, it, it's everywhere. Um, I heard too, that there's countries that are going to be starting their own cryptocurrencies that are going to be a national cryptocurrency. Yes. I think 
Canada even talked about this. I'm not sure if they're doing anything. What would be the relationship ideally? Can you talk to the idea of a relationship between even national cryptocurrencies and these like non-nationally based independent ones, how that would work? Yeah. So what you're describing is called a central bank digital currency, CBDC is what they're commonly referred to. Um, China is by far and away the most advanced in terms of developing a CBDC as a central bank digital currency, um, which is one of the reasons, A, that uh, you get the sense that they're banning Bitcoin. They don't want other competition for their new digital currency. Um, and it's also one of the reasons that other countries are actually investigating this. Um, China or uh, Canada is investing, Canada, United States, most of these countries are still in the research phase. Um, they've put out a couple interesting papers, um, but nothing, um, nothing too adventurous yet. Um, CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies are, um, well, first of all, they won't be decentralized. Um, they have no need of decentralization. Um, their security comes from the state. The, the, um, the government is going to maintain the security of, of the thing. The consensus algorithm is you're going to be part of this country because you are part of this country. <laughs> There's your consensus. Um, so why would they want to do this? Um, there's a couple complicated answers. <laughs> um, I can't say that I'm a super expert on this, but I can tell you that um, there is some really concerning things um, that could result um, from a central bank digital currency, especially if you're thinking about it in context of China, which has a very authoritarian type government. Um, Obviously, something like China has a uh, social credit system where um, behavior that's deemed bad for the state um, is, you know, bad for your ability to freely travel throughout the country, to get a job, all this, all this stuff. Um, with something like a central bank digital currency, um, you could hook that social credit score mm. into your bank account. Right. So if you have done something that uh, the government does not like, um, they could say, well, now you have zero one. There, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of um, the other side of that is, you know, for a country um, that is less authoritarian, but um, let's say a country like Canada um, that's going through a recession and the central banks decide that what is really needed is monetary stimulus. Um, they're going to give everyone, you know, some amount of dollars um, and that's going to stimulate the economy and get out of this recession faster. Um, they've been saying that for about a decade. That's neither mm. here nor there. We, we can get into that if you want. Mm. Um, Here's the thing. Right now, the only method for them to stimulate the economy is through the banks. Um, they have this complicated way of they set the rates for the banks to borrow out of, um, and these commercial banks are then going to distribute it or give loans to um, the population. With something like a central bank digital currency, um, the wallet you have, the account you have, is with the central bank directly. So if they want to stimulate the economy, they want to give everyone $100, they can just snap their fingers and your bank account now has $100 more. It cuts out that commercial bank middleman. Hmm. Um, so that is kind of one of the advantages. 
Um, but it really is a, it does have those dangers of, well, if you get authoritarian or if things start getting, um, that, that lack of decentralization really starts to become problematic as times start to get more stressful. And, you know, yeah. my thesis is things are going to get worse before they get any better yeah. in the current economic and climate conditions that we have in the world. Yes. Yeah. Now that's, to me, that's the crux of this is um, how this is going to evolve in that relationship between the power structures that were to the newly formed potential um, economic engine that this creates or economic um, routing pathways or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've often thought that if the world was run by governments that I trusted and I really knew had the best interest of people in general, like I really believe that then I could see a lot of things being implemented that I wouldn't want to agree with now because I don't trust the government so much. And that idea of their ability to control things in the way that you're talking about with the social credit score in China and such, I don't want to give that an opportunity to, to, to develop um, at the current time. I would like a world where I could really look at the government and the financial world, trust them to have humanity's best interests at heart. But, you know, what does that even mean? So, um, Here's, here's where my mind's going. It's okay. So a person like myself looks at this and goes, I like the idea of a decentralized currency because it gives me a sense. It could offer me a sense of freedom from a dependency on a entity that I don't actually trust. Um, I still want to work with the government to make it better. I'm not trying to pull away from that context, but, but, but I see that now, if I were to, if I were to have just an abstract number, say hundred thousand dollars and a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, that's my life savings. And I put it into Bitcoin. Um, that means that money is no longer in circulation in the economy as such normally, right? And so am I disconnecting my ability to have to provide a, a role in the economy in, as it is in that sense? Um, I would say no. Um, for the same reason that if you take that $100,000 and you invest it in a stock, um, mm. it's also not you know removing from the economy. Um, the what the state is most interested in for most of us is its ability to collect its taxes. Uh, you're going to render under Caesar because Caesar's going to get his due. Mm -hmm. um, so the current state of the government to cryptocurrencies to whatever is most governments are treating uh, most crypto as a security, which is a asset that grows in value over time, much like a stock. Mm. Um, what that means is you can take that 100,000 invested in Bitcoin, but if you want to take some of the gains back, let's say that, you know, it doubles your money and you're saying, okay, I want that 100,000 back. So I'll have 100,000 Bitcoin, 100,000 in my bank account. Um, well, you're going to get hit with capital gains tax. Mm. And so the control st structure that the governments have put in place is they're really focusing on the on-ramps and off-ramps into and out of crypto can do whatever you want in crypto really but if you want to come back um you want to take that money back one way or another um you're going to have to um prove a that you got it through um legal means that you didn't you know steal somebody else's or whatever um and you're going to have to pay taxes on it so on the onboarding ramp in order to get that crypto 
Um, usually what you're going to do is you're going to go to exchange like Coinbase or something. And in order to sign up for Coinbase, you're going to have to do complete something called KYC, know your customer. Um, and this is going to be able to, to say, Coinbase is going to be able to prove to the government that says, yes, Luke bought this Bitcoin at this date and we have all that. Um, so that's the on-ramp. And then the off-ramp obviously is at tax time. They're going to take whatever the capital gains tax is for your particular region. Yeah. And then if they do that, then at those points of exchange, they can get their tax revenue that they need from exchanging in general. Because I've seen businesses uh, online mainly say that you can pay with Bitcoin now. And I was, I was like, well, how is that going to work? Right. But, but that still means, and this is a weird thing in, in the land of abstraction, is that there's like a currency within the country that isn't part of the country that you can use to pay for things. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that kind of hits the nail on the head is that, um, Right now in our society, in, in, in our little tribe here on earth, um, the global reserve currency is the US dollar. Uh, yeah, so um, for the past hundred years, we've basically lived in a society um, that is that has the US dollar as the global reserve currency. Um, what we this this started in you know first world war second world war um, where the U.S. dollar essentially replaced the uh, pound sterling um, Britain's currency as the global reserve. Um, for a number of reasons, um, we're seeing the end of that U.S. Uh, dollar as the sole global reserve currency. Um, America's power in that sense is um, started, starting to weaken compared to the rest of the world. Um, that's not like a, a bad thing. That's not necessarily America becoming weak, weaker. Um, really, it's a lot of the rest of the world becoming stronger. Um, the effects of globalization really helped uh, developing countries really develop their economies. Um, you know, countries like China have become the factory of the world, um, and they have, um, you know, a dollar that is strengthening relative to the U.S. dollar um, over the macro term, over the long scale. Um, what we're starting to see is the beginning of the end for the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for that. I kind of got into some of them. Another thing is, though, it actually doesn't suit America all that well anymore. Um, the US dollar as reserve currency makes a lot of sense if you're fighting a cold war with the Soviet Union. They needed a global dollar, global economic engine um, because their strategy against the Soviet Union was to have a stronger global economy than them. That's no longer the case. Now it's a bunch of individual countries and it's very expensive for the United States to, to maintain that US dollar. Um, you think about the military presence that it needs to do. You think about um, you know, just the sheer amount of money that you need to pump into the system in order to keep it going. Um, it doesn't make sense in the current environment for a lot of reasons. So as we start to look towards the future, um, we're going to see not the US dollar become replaced by another global reserve currency, but likely what you're going to see is several reserve currencies. For some things in some circumstances, you might use the Chinese Yuan, or you might use the Euro, or you might use the US dollar, or you might be using a cryptocurrency. Um, cryptocurrencies specifically because it is 
trustless because you don't have to trust any one person. Mm -hmm. It is really good um, to travel international lines where you don't have to deal with, okay, is this country legit? Is the rule of law there? Um, if I sign a contract with someone in an African country, is that contract going to be honored? We have a system now, a decentralized system where um, that trust is guaranteed. If the conditions of that contract is met, then that contract is triggered. It, it, is, it, is, it is guaranteed by the blockchain. Um, now that gets into Ethereum and smart contracts. I don't think we'll have time to go into that today, um, but that's where you know a lot of the really fun, interesting things starts to come into play. Um, but the point is, um, I think in the next you know dozen years, um, we're going to see further retractment of the U.S. dollar, and we're going to see a lot more regional currencies at play, um, which I think actually benefits cryptocurrencies because it actually acts as kind of a a further abstraction on these monetary abstractions and access lubrication between, you know, the yuan and, and the dollar and the euro and all these things. Um, that's mm. all speculation. Um, but that's, that's kind of where I see this macro landscape leading. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's, that's part of one of the last elements that I wanted to discuss with today too, is like moving into the future. Nobody knows the future. Um, but before I really jump into that one, um, even within the state of the world today, where it's, 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 there's a feeling of everything's chaotic these days. Everything is, is going in random directions and it seems like the extremes are getting, well, I think they are getting more extreme in many ways. Um, and so, you know, you can look at certain principles of human behavior and go, okay, well, greed has always existed um, the desire to consolidate one's power has always existed. There are people that are in power who are not morally the most high morally developed people. So there's going to be um, a, a, a sort of a metaphysical war of ideas about where to go and what ideology to follow and who's. And I see a lot of that. And I don't just mean with the economic world. I'm talking the larger scale here. Um and one of the problems I think when in, for the individual trying to decipher what's going on in the world is where does the line between the real corruption and the real nasty bullshit and the real lying in the world and then going into full on crazy town of conspiracy assumptions. And I think that when you brought up the social credit system in China, it's a good example of something that exists but is so far away from what most people think is even possible that it's, 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 it's challenging to find where that really, like what is really going on and where are these things really going in that sense. So what that would come to, I guess, in terms of, of, of the spaces is, is this is like, okay, so if you're, if you're in a situation where you had to like, you know, defeat an enemy, right? Like in a very, very, very symbolic representation when they're most clear close to the end of their fight they're going to lash out with the most vigor and violence and and these hegemonic social economic structures that have been going on in our society for ever almost they must be feeling the pinch right now in terms of this evolution because i mean it just this conversation today has blown my mind and just how beautiful that idea of decentralized currency could be because it eliminates the ability for that consolidation of power into the wrong end in, in so it's incredible actually um so anyways 
the where I'm trying to go with this is just like how do you how how do we go in the future recognizing this challenge of two possible sort of directions and and what can be done to kind of steer towards the one that's better for humanity overall rather than just a few select people um well i can tell you i don't have the answer no i'm sorry i don't expect you to be nostradamus <laughs> that's not my, my point um i'm just i just mean just to explore that as an idea yeah because um you know, I've said this to a few of the people that have come on the podcast, but um, we are in a state of chaos. And there's an old saying, Chinese saying to, to do with the idea that um, danger and opportunity are the same. And so there's danger in that chaos, but there's opportunity in it too. And so speak towards maybe there's opportunity in that sense. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, it's things are likely going to get worse in, in general. Um, you know, the, the political divides that we've seen are you know, um, I, I believe a lot in like continuation. Um, like when I'm, you know, looking at a stock or something, I think if it's, you know, going up, um, the momentum's going to keep it going up. If the if it's going down, it's you know probably going to keep going down. Um, that continuation, that momentum matters. Um, I think the momentum right now in the political world and the economic world is that things are generally getting worse, right? Um, I, I don't think that's a that's a crazy kind of uh, that that's a hot take here in 2021 post COVID all this stuff. Um, I think a lot of challenges are we're going to see a lot of challenges to kind of the the Western ideals of you know privacy and liberty and, and all those things. A lot of those things that we've taken for granted as a culture, especially in the West, um, are, are going to be continually stressed. Um, and I don't know if we've done a good job of defending the things that have already been tested. Um, take privacy, for example. Um, it, it feels like, especially in the digital world, that nothing is private, that, you know, your data is known, it's being sold to all sorts of people and entities. Um, the the governments freely spy on on you know mm -hmm. even within the West um, you know that that they know who you are and they know what you're doing kind of thing. Um, I think it, it it's a really hard question because as you said, it's really easy to go from that to conspiracy theory. You know, the the president is out to get you to kind of kind of crazy talk, right? Um, and so really. You know, for me personally, it's been what I need to do is focus on my own health, uh, mental health, personal health, um, all that kind of thing. Um, I think in a world where everything is global, we lose sight of the local um, and we lose sight of if you're doing something that's benefiting um, the people you're with and the community that you're with on a local level, that is actually going to do good things on the global scale if enough people are helping each other and, you know, strengthening the community, then those communities are going to be stronger in these global headwinds. So for me personally, it's been really, these are in crazy times, but find a sense of peace, however, however you can, whatever that means to you, whatever you have to do to do it. Um, hopefully those are constructive things to you. Um, you're, you're not doing, you know, things that are ultimately negative for you in order to, you know, achieve that sense of calm and peace. Um, but for me, I know that, 
you know, um, I used to live in Vancouver. I've moved away from Vancouver. Um, I've made some pretty strong life changes um, because as things have gotten more chaotic, I found I've, I've needed to do more um, to get that sense of peace and, and to get that, that sense of what I'm doing is calm for at least me. What you have to do, you, you have to be in the eye of the storm because in the eye of the hurricane, it's calm, it's sunny ways. It's, it's a crazy all around you, but you know, your boat for the moment is, is safe. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that's kind of, I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking or, or, or what, but uh, that's what came to mind with the crisis versus opportunity. And the fact is there is going to be opportunity. I mean, yeah. you kind of have to dodge and weave and you kind of have to really know what you're looking at and, and spend the time. But um, I think for me, it all comes down to the things that I'm really interested in, um, the things that I like to do as an enjoyment um, will be the authors of the opportunity that is available to me. That's an interesting way to put it, yeah. Um, well, of course, you know, I agree with the basis of life being that you seek your life in a way that is sustaining a high level of health and internal peace and all the mental clarity. Um, and, um, I think getting out of cities is definitely something that, um, for a lot of, like, if you've never lived outside of the city and, and been closer to nature in that sense, it really makes a difference. And this gets into more of where my, um, because of my background, I have a little bit more, I feel of comfortability talking about, and, but I can relate this to the Bitcoin th or just cryptocurrency actually. So we evolved these really complex nervous systems that are designed to respond to stimuli in the environment in many, many different ways. And you can divide that, those responses initially into two categorical things that really matter. One of them is, is the fight or flight thing, which is a fear response. And that is a stress response as well. And it will do sustain over long periods of time. It's definitely not good for you in any way. Then the other one is what I recently been sort of calling um, the social dynamic response, which is I want to interact with other people in a way that's friendly and positive and po uh, positive is the right word. And this is something we develop largely with like, um, you know, sharing food is a really good example of that because you can right. see an animal like a lion pride, they share the kill in a certain way, but they still do it. Anyway, um, one of the main things that I think we need to do this is just me speaking to you. I'm not trying to claim to be telling anybody anything, but is, is to, to, to get some degree of separation between ourselves and, and concepts like authority and currency and whatnot, and look at them with the objective idea of what, what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to work? And how do we interact with them in such a way that sustains the values that we really want to have in society? So from a bigger picture concept, we're talking about the, the, the importance of like the balance, I think, in terms of like large scale world issues and the individual's life and, and where and how and why it's important, I should say, maybe is the best way to put it, why it's important that you as an individual sustain a sense of health and peace in your own life. And, and you'd mentioned, and I agreed with you, getting out of the city is one of these elements, getting closer to nature. But I was talking about the 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 evolution of the nervous system and then the, the types of responses. So we have a response for socializing. That response um, requires trust in the community and it requires good communication. So you need to be able to talk to each other and really understand and feel out each other in that sense. 
And then you need to trust that if, because all money is, is a form of trust in a way, because you have to trust that this currency will buy you the bread you need or whatever. And so um, I think that part of the thing that people, if we're going to go forward, then again, this is coming back to my own personal just interpretations, is to explore and actually conceptualize what our values actually are. What do we want as a value in society? Because one of the problems I see with the global space, the large scale global world is that there's no real conception of what it matters overall other than greedy sort of momentary gains, which obviously are not gonna be helpful to the long run. So um, the crypto thing then, I can see literal ideological battle going on then between the people that understand the value of decentralizing the currency and giving everyone equal footing in that regard. And then the people that would want to try to take advantage of it for their own purposes, probably not that they would state it in that exact way publicly, but that inclination being held back. And um, it, okay, so here's, here's another, here's a question about that. Um, do you know of uh, any real, I've heard about this from like, you know, nefarious sort of actors maybe, but could a government, could the world governments get together and say no more Bitcoin done and it'd be over? Um, that's going to be the big fight in, in yeah. probably the next couple of years is what can they do? Um, so one of the um, big resources that I use to really get an understanding of um, blockchain in general, um, it's a MIT course that was released on uh, YouTube, um, uh, MIT's uh, Blockchain and Money. Um, it was taught actually by the current head of the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, who's responsible for, you know, um, enforcing securities law in the United States. Um, and uh, in one of the episodes, it's like 25 hour long lectures on everything blockchain and money. Um, and in one of them, he was talking about uh, uh, the, the regulatory question. Um, and uh, the way he framed it, I think, stuck with me the most is governments have um, three options to choose from when approaching cryptocurrencies. They can choose um, a, a policy to isolate it, um, to regulate it, or to integrate it. Hmm. Um, China is an example of they've isolated it. They've said, no, it's out of the system. It's illegal. It's banned. Um, countries like the United States are tending more towards the regulatory question. They're going to regulate it. It's going to be part of the system. Um, my general sense is they will likely have more success engaging a policy of regulation um, because that's the easiest way to get, you know, tax revenue from, you know, the people from it. Um, and my, my feeling is that the governments um, want taxes above all things else. Maybe I'm wrong there, but uh, I, I think taxes are pretty important to, you know, nation states. Um, what I believe is, is that with regulation um, becomes the seed of actual integration. Um, mm -hmm. Like just how more and more of the economy started shifting towards the internet, just as more and more things started developing that are just internet-based, where now the internet is literally the underpinning of our modern society. Um, I think blockchain and distributed ledger technology um, provides that same kind of seed where um, 
maybe they try and ban it. I don't know how um, easy that would be. Um, I'd like to think that the people are in charge. We try to be a bit more subtle and try to, you know, kill it with compliance than, you know, mm. declare outright war. We'll see what comes to pass. Um, but I think that if they choose to regulate it, if it becomes part of the system, that some of the natural advantages of having this trustless architecture and being able to guarantee certain things without having to trust in a person or entity, um, I think that naturally starts to eat into um, the current system just because there's a natural advantage. Um, one last thing to, to leave you with, and this is kind of on the bleeding edge of, of crypto. This is kind of the, the stuff that isn't even in the public consciousness, consciousness yet. Um, and it relates to that, you know, talking about community and, and talking about being with people you trust. Um, one of the big things that is happening kind of under the radar right now is this concept called a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO, D-A-O. Um, and a decentralized autonomous organization is essentially a community of people who share and invest in a token or a currency specific to that community. Hmm. Now, that's really interesting because if you think in terms of like a charity, like this is a community that's going to fight cancer. That's the point of this community. They can actually create a token that is it's, it's, it's a money with the specific point of fighting cancer. Um, I think that's super powerful. And I think that's going to be um, one of the things that starts to eat away into corporations because it's no longer one guy at the top. It's a group of people all headed, all pushing, all organizing behind the um, central thesis of whatever your um, token is. Um, and baked within this decentralized autonomous organization is a method to actually vote on what you're doing, how you're doing it, and you're actually using that token as a voting mechanism. It's like you're putting up some of this money. So if you have a thousand of this, this DAO token, you can actually vote on what you want to do and how you want to do it and, and actually lead the community in, in where you want to go based on voting methods using this money. So money as votes is kind of the things that um, hasn't even really broken the public consciousness net. Right now we're, we're still discussing if Bitcoin is going to zero or not. It's, no, no, that's, that, there's some really interesting stuff that's, that's still un underway, but yeah, well, this concept of a digital autonomous organization is super fascinating. Yeah, no, that I, I haven't heard of it, but as soon as you explain it, and especially thanks, thanks to the conversation we just had where I got a framework of what's going on, not only does that make sense, but that feels like it might even be an evolutionary step forward for us as a, as a species. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a song by Machine Head, a band, metal band, and it, they just splice in um, quotes from Terrence McKenna. And Terrence, I don't know if you know who Terrence McKenna is, I don't actually. He, he was famous for promoting the idea um, that we evolved out of sort of proto-human monkey type creatures by um, largely ingesting magic mushrooms. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I've heard that those, theory. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's little blurbs of his, but a few of those little blurbs in this song, and it's, it's a cool song. Um, um, they speak to the idea of people bringing forth new ideas that actually really revolutionize the world in a positive way. And so it just, we just kicked off a memory of that, but so it's not the point is the song or anything, but okay. So that's, that's really good. Um, 
I'm ready to look towards things that work better than what's going on. I'm definitely interested in that. But again, being coming from martial art background, maybe, I don't know, or just whatever it is, you're not, it's not filling a vacant space. These, these new potential ways of exchange are, are competing against established power. And that established power, I don't believe is likely to want to give up its power very easily. Um, and the more you push it in the corner, the more likely it's going to act desperately. And so I think that this brings us back around to what you're saying about your individual life and your individual cultivation of peace and stuff, because, you know, I believe you know this, and I think for people listening, this isn't a really hard concept to get, but if you were to take on a challenge like that in a some more direct symbolical way, you need to come from a place of healthy, peaceful calmness to really discern what is the best way to move forward with this type of thing. Because um, I had a guy on uh, uh, who's, who tried running for a political candidacy in, a, um, in the last election. He didn't get there, but he's got a lot of interesting ideas on these things. And, and he know, he, he's really in touch with his community. This is back in Vancouver Island, where I, where I grew up. Right. And he was talking about the seeming, the seething, I guess is maybe a better word for it, um, discontent that's going along in the background of society right now and how that will spill over into behaviors we don't want. And so to steer away from that dynamic of the rub turning into something really nasty, it's that individuals take care enough, enough care of themselves to sustain that sense of clarity in their own direction, because it is going to be a fight, I think, in at least some contexts. Um, the new world, can, the new world, whatever that is, um, it's not going to emerge um, without some resistance, right? There's going to be some. So I think I think that's a great sort of circling to a beginning point and an end point, right? Because it all comes back to that. Um, the only other thing I wanted to sort of uh, uh, touch on is um, if we were to if we were, and this is to do with, you just caught up this wonderful concept of this like community-based currency, right? Okay, so we'll say, so you had one for Vancouver. Okay, so Vancouver has one. And um, could you, is it, is it the theory that you would exchange that note of currency for a more generalized one if you went to Calgary or something? Or is that gonna only have value in a local place? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It kind of speaks to um, a more general sense of how, cryptocurrency works um but basically um you would have a specific token for vancouver um you could hold that earn that invest in that whatever um but because this is all part of a a networked marketplace all of these currencies um can have value discovered relative to each other which means the Vancouver coin is worth $10 um, US. Um, the Calgary coin is worth you know, $10 US. We, can now, we now know that you can exchange um, one Vancouver coin for one Calgary coin and it's gonna be roughly the same. Yeah. Um, this is writ large for everything. Because everything is in a marketplace um, and all of these things are fading into each other, everything has value relative to each other so you can actually move in and out and you know a lot of the what the a lot of the you know clever day traders in the crypto space what they'll do is they'll you know figure which of these coins are um gaining relative to the other move in there move back and forth whatever um 
uh, it's not not investment advice. It's you know probably <laughs> to do whatever you want to do. But uh, um, yeah, the the fact is that um, um, what's interesting though is the utility of what that Vancouver coin might give you. Um, you know, maybe you know you 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 can only eat at a certain place with Vancouver coin, right? Like they they won't accept uh, Calgary coin there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's where kind of the future money of money goes it's not one currency to rule them all but thousands of currencies that are loosely connected to each other through this global marketplace yeah and that's that's why that stuck out to me as a concept well because as as i sort of was saying is i feel like this is at least potentially an evolutionary step forward in how we organize our economies which yep. is so important it's so so important um and what I, okay, so what I like about it, this is why that idea attracted me was first, I like that idea, though, because, as you said, too, is, if you know, there's what is this kind of a cheesy saying, but, um, you know, act globally, think locally, or something, something to that end, right? right? The, yeah, yeah. The, the importance that I, I get that too. And that, that, that really plays into that. But at the same time, and I, I like this kind of thing is I don't really understand what that would mean, and how it would actually play out either. It's, it's an idea of how to move forward that sounds like it's worth exploring and with the right expert understanding behind it might be very beneficial, but I like the beauty of it being kind of like, I don't know how that would exactly work, but if, if it works, it could be amazing. So, you know, keeping our heads clear about, and again, this is one of my main themes is what are your values? What are your morals? What are, where do you place that? And then keeping those clear within the community you work with and moving forward from that. I mean, that really could do some revolutionarily wonderful things. Yeah. I, um, I, um, I still, even after the last, you know, year and a half of particular insanity, um, I still believe there's a better world possible for humanity and for all of us. And then, and it always comes back to those principles is, is your, in that sense. But, um, so yeah, so th thank you very much for sharing this information because I personally just learned a lot and great and gained a lot from that. And I'm that much more intrigued by this. And it's a little bit of a nice antidote to the doom and gloom kind of stuff that I have. Not, not that I don't, uh, we need to explore those things too, because of course I call this yeah. thing, the dark path podcast, because the point is to go into look at the things that haven't been looked at to try to make more sense of the world. Um, but this is kind of a fun one to me because it's so new and it's so promising yet not manifest to what it could be. And it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's uh, what I like about it is it's not a utopian vision. It's a, yeah. you know, it's, it's starting off as how can, you know, people make a whole lot of money, um, <laughs> which I think is very, is, is very human. Um, but I think there's also a path from let's make a lot of money to, let's actually fundamentally change the world for better. Um, but it well, takes bold, a bit right? of a conversation in order to, to, to see how you square that circle because it really is a bit of a paradigm shift in how you think about money and think about value and, and, and who has the control and, you know, not control as a bad thing, but control is in a, you know, control is, is control. You need control in this world somehow or else we're all going to go off the cliff. So <laughs> that's right. Um, I, it's one of the reasons why cryptocurrency has captivated me um, mm -hmm. is that it does offer some solutions, mm -hmm. um, both kind of on the short term and, you know, on the long term. 
Um, I'm, I'm in general an optimistic guy. Um, and while I think that things are going to get worse before they get better, I also think that things are ultimately going to get better if we stand strong and yeah. live, live with whole intent. Yes, I, I agree. Um, and um, I'm, I, I'm glad that I'd have a little bit more of an, in, an insight as to how this is going to potentially play out. And I'll be paying more attention to the crypto space going forward. I'd also like to give you an opportunity if there's any website or links you want to mention that you have, because I know you have a, a newsletter, I think. Yep, I've been um, writing um, about cryptocurrency. It's really just been me recording my kind of dive into um, uh, crypto. Um, it's at uh, jerkytreats.dev, um, which is a hell of a URL, but that's that's the one I chose. Um, and I try to release something um, every month, um, not necessarily just about crypto, whatever kind of piques my interest, but the, the main thing has been um, crypto in terms of, you know, the different narratives that are going on, how these things work, um, looking at it from different perspectives, like, you know, from a game developer point of view, since I'm a game developer by trade, um, I've been kind of looking like at how, how do you leverage the blockchain for games kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I, I've been mainly focusing on. Um, you know, one of the things I'm doing right now is, is trying to learn how to actually work on the blockchain, like as an engineer, as a software engineer. Hmm. Um, hopefully I'll be able to extend kind of my website to be more of a you know, actually interacting with uh, blockchain on a, on a very real level. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just kind of the hobby. Uh, the day-to-day -day is, uh, you know, just writing about the things that I find interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would uh, uh, definitely be happy to have you come back on and update us with some more information as it, as it develops, because it will. Yep. And uh, uh, yeah, and, 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 and I hope everybody goes and checks out the, the newsletter and everything like that. And thank you again for your time, Justin. Thank you so much for having me, Lucas. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely.